Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay. Rolling. Where are these one. babies? <laughs> Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this, our most holiest of 43rd episodes, we're going to talk about storytelling through photography. But before that, we'll be talking to Vanessa at Armadillo Tintypes, and our own Tiffin Sinclair will drop by to lay it all out for us. We've got zine reviews, the answering machine, and a couple of plugs, and so much more. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? (laughs) I am doing quite well, thank you very much. I had been scanning and developing and scanning and developing and scanning and developing, and I was losing my mind, but I... (laughs) past couple of days haven't done at least no any scanning okay <laughs> so, that's fine yeah i could not i could not take it anymore i was like really like it was not fun anymore <laughs> <laughs> to the point where i thought that possibly if i'm if i have a job and i'm using film that i should at least take half of it to get developed really it, you, it's you've... a little overwhelming wow okay you've come to that conclusion you're talking about the birdwell job yeah. Still. I mean, Still. it's expensive though. That's the only thing. And but then I'm thinking, well, it is expensive and this is part of my cost. So maybe they if they want it fast and soon, I should send it out and have them send their the digitals to them right away and then yeah. they can pay for it. That would I don't make sense. See why not, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be up to them, but sure. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I don't want to push my luck. I mean, I'm no. already like super excited that this company is letting me shoot film. So I yeah. probably shouldn't burn that bridge just yet. And you're good at developing. So thank you. Well, yes, <laughs> of course. Yeah. As long as I can get the film on the reel, but we'll talk about that later. Um, I also received some things in the mail, which is been kind of a bummer when you're really busy and you get stuff in the mail that you want to play with but you can't because you like have to work (laughs) oh i understand that absolutely (laughs) yeah i got a five by seven traveling tank for a wet plate so i basically have like everything i need to start and i actually did start you guys so ah it's crazy (laughs) um my plates look like shit but it's super fun um (laughs) I finally got like an actually like really nice respirator from the shop. Oh, so okay. uh, I'll probably wear that because I noticed that I was walking out of the trailer like a little, <laughs> I don't know. I felt like I like lost a few brain cells. So, you know, I, I'm going <laughs> to yeah, try not to. Careful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I got good gloves. I've been wearing gloves. I'm actually getting more comfortable wearing gloves, which is really nice. That's good. So, yeah. Yeah. Being very careful. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to. Hoping to do some more photographic stuff this weekend. I'm really excited. Oh, cool! I actually decided that today that I want to cut down some of my ortho into two and a quarter, three and a quarter, and use them in my my either my baby Graflex 
and my RB, maybe both. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah. So super exciting, fun stuff, hopefully coming up. And uh, yeah, that's it. So how about you? How, what the hell have you been up to? Well, I've been the hell up to camping. Last weekend, I did my first, I guess it wasn't my first overnight. I guess I've done that before, but I did two nights in a row. And Mm. it just gets you in the mood to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. My photographic idea, and I know I've talked about this on the show before, was in certain counties in Washington and Eastern Washington, they have something called summer roads. And Mm -hmm. those are roads that are only open in the summer. And I thought, hey, that'd be a really cool photography project. You find some summer roads and you take pictures of them. And even the word summer roads, there's like a beautifulness to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think there is. It's very Simon and Garfunkel-y. <laughs> the sounds Sorry. of summer roads. <laughs> but the idea of just picking random roads and driving down them, that's like that there's a romantic feel to it. Oh my pra- gosh, yeah. But practically speaking, it doesn't really work. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it might, but also it might not. And when you're on a on a limited time schedule where you, you're driving for maybe five hours to see these summer roads and you pick eight, 10 of them that go nowhere and there's just nothing to photograph on them. Mm-hmm. After three hours of just driving roads and like, there's nothing here, like, there's nothing to photograph. You get, you get kind of bummed and bored. Well, what about like, there was no like spring flowers coming up, nothing like that? There were, but not there. The summer roads are generally farm roads, meaning that okay. they go between farmers' fields. Mm-hmm. So you don't have flowers. You, you have, generally speaking, just wheat out there. And it wasn't even like the cool wheat. It was just like the poser wheat. (laughs) It was just like six inches high. And so the hills looked sort of bald. It wasn't even average. You know, like balding. And it was really not photogenic. I didn't really care for it. It was really neat. You you get out there and you stop and you just listen. And there's just this, like this nothing. There's no sound. And that was really, really lovely. I liked that a lot. I was going to ask you, you mentioned you were going to not use your rain fly. Did you end up keeping it open and sleeping through the night? I slept under the stars. Yeah, a lot of people I know cowboy camp and things like that, but that is not for me. You need that little netting between you and- <laughs> And nature, yeah, I, I do. And I usually have the the, the fly, which is the, the the cover that goes over the tent that keeps rain and light and all of that off of you. If you don't use it, you've just got screen. And my tent is just all screen on top. It's really lovely. And yeah, I did. And if I put my glasses on, I could see through the screens. And this the stars out there are, you know, the Milky Way was there. The moon was just like a real sliver of a crescent. So there was a lot of, there's no, there was very little light pollution. And that was mm-hmm. really, really wonderful. That's so awesome. So before we get really started here, before we get to the answering machine, I want to talk about something that we sort of talked about last episode. So earlier this month, Fred Sprinkle, aka Fred Sprinkle on Instagram, wrote an article for Emulsive called Death of the Amateur Photographer. Now, our dear Tiffin covered the bulk of that in the last episode, but there were some things that Fred said towards the end of his article that I wanted to address. So in his last paragraph, Fred understandably laments not only the death of the amateur photographer, as he puts it, but also states that the artistic photograph is on life support. And while I generally agree with 
pretty much everything he said in the article, I'm not sure I can follow him down the path of the artistic photograph being nearly a relic. Honestly, I think it's kind of the opposite, at least as far as film is concerned. And I don't know if he was drawing that line there. I'm not necessarily into that personally, but a lot of people do crazy stuff with digital too. That's very artful. That's like true. Turn people into mermaids and shit. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's your that's your idea of art. It's like, I don't know, turn people into mermaids. <laughs> yes. Okay, fine. Fine. I'm cool with that. Actually, turn anything into other animals. You, you remember when I got like super obsessed with like hybrid animals <laughs> and I was like what? sending you like a ton of them all the time? Like animorphs? Yeah, like like a pug and a horse. So oh, it had yeah. like a pug face and like a horse body and yeah. it was like a horse or something. Like, I don't know. I'm really, I really like those. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I don't know if this is what we're talking about, but you know, I guess it is. I'm not going to be the one to say that it's not art. That's not going to be me here. That's like a whole other conversation. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> I hope so. So when there was only film, like, but like in the eighties and nineties and, and well before that, almost no film shooters because everybody shot film almost none of them would consider themselves takers of artistic photos. You know, mom taking pictures at the soccer game, probably she wouldn't consider those art, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But now I'd say it's pretty damn close to all film shooters. Like everybody who's shooting film now would kind of say that, yeah, I'm doing something artistic with this. People yeah. feel inspired by film today in ways that pretty much nobody has in the past. And I think it's because of digital, people feel drawn to film as an, in an artistic way that I don't think has happened before. People have been drawn to film for artistic ways, but not because of digital. And so I think more people are being drawn to it that way. So yeah, even if we're talking about photography as a whole, both film and digital, I'd still say that the number of artistic photographs is greater than ever before. We're just producing more pictures, essentially. And I'd, I'd probably say there's more artistic photographers as well. Mm -hmm. This is mostly because photography is more accessible to people than it really ever has been before. Yeah. And I feel like this is the moment where I could say bad things about like selfies and all these things. But honestly, like I've come to the conclusion that if someone's really into photography and they're taking pictures of themselves <laughs> just to get practice with it or even and then the, and then that they venture out of that and they decide that they really like to hold a camera and then take pictures like if a phone gets you started and taking pictures on your phone and then you decide to like progress from there, then I'm all for it. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like it's not that I'm a super judgmental person, but I, I do feel like I have definitely been a little bit judgy with like people that like if you look at their profile, there's like a lot of pictures of themselves. But even that's artistic, right? I mean, for the yeah. most part. I think I needed to get over that because there's something in me that I had to be okay with. Sure. And I shouldn't be like so judgy on people's art if they wanted <laughs> If they want to use them as the subject, then I mean that's perfect. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. Available. I guess I just wanted to mention that whatever kind of work anybody's doing, if someone's using like, oh, like I really love photography, but right now I just have a phone. Like I'm not going to be like, oh, okay, like uh, you don't have a camera. Like I'd be like, dude, that's awesome. Like yeah, use your phone. It's accessible. You you're thinking about photography. You're thinking about photographs. It's a good start. It's yeah. somewhere. And I think Instagram is largely responsible for that. I think so. Yes. That's getting so, people to think, even when they were doing like the weird filters and maybe even because they were doing the weird filters, it got people thinking in a more, it may, maybe not necessarily artistic, but probably artistic, but not normal way that we would normally look at photos. 
Yeah. And so I don't know if Frank is talking about quantity or quality, but if we're talking quality, what one person might consider artistic, I mean, that's that's a pretty subjective thing, but objectively speaking, we likely have more photographers taking photos they consider art than ever before in the history of photography. And that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I think that does mean that the artistic photograph is nowhere near on life support. So Frank, there's no reason to lament this. I think he said that as kind of a, I wouldn't say a throwaway line, but he said it as a small part of a bigger piece. And, and I did agree with, I did fully agree with this bigger piece, but this one thing just stuck out. I think you'll be happy to know that, that that's still here. I think that's more here than ever. So, and looking at Frank's photos, they're just a huge bunch of artistic wonderfulness. And seriously, you, you should, I'm being really serious. You should check them out. They're, they're unique takes. And Frank, I hope that you, uh, I hope you agree with us here. Cause I think it would make you, I think it would make you happier. <laughs> the amateur photographer might be dead, maybe. But I think the artistic photographer is definitely on the rebound. And I understand that there may be an issue with the commodification of art, but even if art is commodified, which it probably shouldn't be, but even if it is, it is still art, even though it's kind of a bummer. Each episode, we pose a question to our listeners. In turn, they call us up and leave us a message, giving us their insight, answers, and hopefully silliness. And of course, by leave us a message, we mean that they send us a voice message on Instagram and you can too. So... So what was the question this time around, Eric? Well, it was a fun question. I really like this question. I know that you didn't as much. No, I didn't. It's a very Eric question, honestly. It is, but I'm hoping that you turned around a little bit on it. And the question is, what do you like least about being a film photographer? And what we were looking for was not just like bitching about the film community or photography in general. We don't want that. It was an inward looking question. And I think our listeners who responded in, in droves to this one, I think they, they saw that. And so the answers that we got, we actually got, we got kind of too many replies and too many voice messages. So a few of them did have to be left on the cutting room floor. And it wasn't because we don't like you. It was just because, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. Can I push the button now, please? Push the button, Frank. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Vanya and Eric, this is Mina from Sydney. My Instagram is crookandflail. Um, I'd have to say that the thing I don't like the most about film photography when it comes to myself is I can't seem to master Sunny 16. Uh, I can sort of get it when it's exactly sunny and it's exactly uh, 100 ISO film and F16. But the moment one of those variables changes, I'm just lost and, and out comes my, uh, my phone light meter. Thanks for everything. Speak soon. I don't think there's anything wrong with pulling out your phone and re-metering. But yes, I do agree. Sunny 16 is not always the answer. You can put it on Sunny 16 on a sunny day and, you know, shoot the wrong way into the sun and it's going to look like shit. So I actually have a little bit of practical advice here, which is rare Ooh. for me. <laughs> So if you've got, this isn't, this isn't true for every lens, but if you've got a lens and you look down and you set it for, you know, one, one hundredth, one, one, one twenty-fifth of a second and F16. So it's a okay. sunny day. It was a sunny day, but now, oh, it's a little darker. It's a little cloudy. You want to, you want to open it up for two stops. You want to do two stops more light. You just hold the, the shutter speed ring and the aperture ring together and move them together. 
Yeah. One click each Mm -hmm. the same way. And they will watch out for snakes. Shit. That's not good advice. (laughs) That's bad advice. (laughs) (laughs) I just fucked with your aperture. (laughs) Never mind. Okay. I don't have any practical advice here. (laughs) All right. Let's move on. Next question. (laughs) Hi, this is Stuart Webster from uh, Sheffield in the UK. Uh, My Instagram account is analog underscore Sheffield, spelled the English way. The least favourite thing is trying to decide which uh, camera to take out and put film in. Um, I'm down to about 12 now. I've had probably two or three dozen over the last year. Um, But they all offer different things. Uh, I have an Icoflex that I've not put any film through yet. I've got a Yashica mat that I've also not put any film through yet. So uh, it can be tricky to decide uh, which of these beauties to take out. Uh, but hopefully uh, we'll get to shoot them uh, come the summer. Uh, enjoy the program. Take care. Bye. So honestly, I kind of feel like this is like the best kind of problem to ever have. Like I, in my mind, I want to have like a bunch of like old types of cars and I want to have the same problem. Like, oh my gosh. Okay. So it's sunny, but like what car should I take out today? You know? So you want to be <laughs> Jay Leno? Is that what you're saying? Oh God. I guess so. No, the other guy. From New York. I think he has cooler cars. That one guy from New York? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. A lot of the advice we get from photographers who have been around a lot, and maybe that's us now. Maybe we're getting older. Mm, Not yet. Like, oh, soon you'll limit it down to just one or two cameras. Are you at that point yet? Hell no. Oh, my gosh. I'm not a hoarder, but I am definitely a collector of things, which is exactly what a hoarder would say. (laughs) But I like the mechanics of old things. I like to collect things. I like to display them. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to be really difficult for me to have just one camera. That's just not going to happen. I'm not going to fight that either. I'm not a minimalist. It's not that I can't get rid of them. I give cameras away all the time. And Mm -hmm. when it's time, I'll definitely give a couple away. Like when I did this last photo shoot, I didn't take the RB67 and yeah. I was kind of sad a little bit. Like I felt like I was missing. I was missing my RB. Oh, I, I, absolutely. Bit. Yeah. I think I'm there. I think I'm getting close to there. I mean, obviously I'm never going to do one camera. I don't think that's practical, especially since I'm shooting 120 and four by five, that would just be incredibly impractical. But I think I'm really close to that. It's for me, it's just the RB67 when it comes to to medium format. I took the Graflex 2.3, the Morla camera, for those who remember yeah. the conversation a few months ago. I've, I took that out with this camping trip that I did, and I didn't even load it. Are you serious? Yeah, it wasn't because I don't like shooting it. I do enjoy shooting it, but it was just kind of like, I'm pretty happy just shooting the RB. I don't feel the need to load another camera. I was going to take the 6x9 Brownie, the box camera, and I, I didn't because I just didn't feel the need to do it. I did feel the need to bring the RB67. And I did feel the need to bring both the Graflex Crown, the Crown Graphic and the, the Chamonix. Mm-hmm. So those are, the, those are the needs that I felt before going. And mm-hmm. the whole time I didn't feel a want of anything else. Mm. I wouldn't false renunciation or something. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just give everything up or give all the cameras up just because you should be focusing on one camera, but also don't fight it. If it starts to happen, let it. It's happening for a reason. Hey guys, this is Kate Miller-Wilson. I like this question, mostly because I really had to think about it. My least favorite thing about being a film photographer is also one of my favorite things, and that is the limitation. 
I get frustrated sometimes when the light changes and I need to be able to keep shooting. When you're shooting digital, you can just crank up your ISO, but with film, that introduces more challenges. At the same time, those challenges help to spur me creatively, and I find that I get more interesting images when I have to work harder with what I have, especially when it comes to the light. I love that Kate called in <laughs> that's all i have to say yes 100 yes, so everything that she said is amazing <laughs> do you do you find that like when you when you have more uh restrictions and more yeah like hurdles to get over that you take better pictures i think so yeah it's better it makes my it makes me work a little bit harder and i i need that i need that because it's okay. i'm really good at problem solving i feel like and i'm okay. really good with limitations so yeah, leave me out in the desert, dude, with like a bottle of water. <laughs> I will figure. I will figure okay. it out. <laughs> if I, if things start getting, if some hurdles start getting in my way, and for me, limitations are often, well, there's some people watching, or there's some people over there, or I may be on private property, mm -hmm. I may not be, I'm not sure. Uh, that's a limitation for me, and I get nervous. If I have light going in and out of clouds, and I can't, you know, if I, I'm waiting for the light or whatever. I don't know if it gives me like more time to like think of the, the composition or what. I don't know if that that those kinds of limitations and restrictions help mm -hmm. me. I do like maybe I'm lazy, and I just I like an easy maybe. shot. You, I, I do notice just because I've traveled with you that when you something doesn't go your way, you get a little frustrated, and it's I hilarious. Yep. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> gets all grumpy it's great because we're in different cars so i'm just like all right you go pout in your own car dude <laughs> goodbye i'll see you at the next okay next place so my least favorite thing about film <laughs> photography just might be you so cool your jets there hey this is logan in portland the biggest thing about film photography that i don't like is having to worry about film photography wondering if you know, Fuji's going to axe another another film or what's going to be around, uh, how long are the cameras going to last, how repairable will they be, like, just feeling like large companies aren't going to support a growing, a growing market. Anyway, that's it. Yeah. Well, I don't shoot a lot of Kodak to begin with, and Fuji, is there anything that they even make anymore? I guess they make slide film, right? Well, yeah, and they make, I mean, they make that Acros, the new Acros. Oh, they do make acros still. still yeah, they make yeah. a few things. I mean, uh, insects, I guess. I mean, they're really putting all their eggs in sure, one basket with that fucking shit. And, and, it, and it it's working is. for them. But I think it is a worry. You know, at some point, it's gonna the, the film photography hobby is going to plateau. It's growing now, but it's going to mm -hmm. plateau. And that the companies that are here, including Ilford, including Fomapan or Foma, will have to decide, are we in Are we in for this? Can we, can we do this mm -hmm. sustainably? Yeah. And I don't think Kodak will. Kodak's got some financial problems coming up on the horizon, possibly, if they lose the case. And there's some kind of insider trading case coming up against them. And if they lose it, that'll be interesting. Fuji is Fuji. Who knows if they'll be here tomorrow? But I have a feeling Ilford will it's be. It's a little, I, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the, this happens to me at least a couple times a year. I'll just like lay in bed like, okay, I'm like super tired. I'm going to go to bed. And then I'm like, fuck, I'm going to die. I keep forgetting that that's going to happen one day. And then I'll just think like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And so <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about like film photography a little bit sometimes. Like I'm like, oh shit, like one of these days, this color is going to be gone forever. And that's it. That will be the end of yeah. it. 
<laughs> but he also touched on another point where nobody's making cameras. I mean, Ilford has like a plastic one and Kodak came out with a plastic one for Europe. And there's a lot of the homemade cameras, but they're all of the homemade cameras are using old shutters. Yeah. And so at some point, we're going to have to make shutters yeah. again. And I don't know how that's going to happen. Maybe um, um, we can do those mirrorless things. <laughs> or, you know, is, is photography maybe in a hundred years, is film photography or I guess analog photography, is it just going to be wet? Play? I was just going to say, I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> it's, it, that'll just end up being it another niche be. hobby. Yeah. You know, some people are knitters. Some people do wet plate photography. I, I think it's going to probably end up being in that realm. Yeah, I would like to maybe knit and also do wet plate photography. If you could knit me a shutter, it'd be really nice. This one's easy. Two words. Fucking dust. <laughs> Fucking dust. <laughs> Lint. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Eric and Vanya. It's David calling again. And... In response to this week's question about uh, least thing about being a film photographer, I would say is being human in a sense, because being human means you forget things or you're busy with your own life. So sometimes you'll forget your camera. Other times you'll be too much in a, in a rush that you can't slow down and enjoy a new environment that you're in and see new co compositions, new pictures that you could take and you can't because something has you busy or something has you distracted from wanting to take that photo. That whole mindfulness thing has got me thinking of like how, like if I pull over to the side of the road and it's just, it's lovely, but I just don't see a picture. Like, is there a way that I can train myself <laughs> to maybe just like take a minute and be like, you know what, I'm going to keep my van door open. I'm going to sit in there for a second, take a couple like, deep breaths, play with my cameras for a little bit, then walk back outside and take another look or something where I'm giving it an extra look at things. Lewis here, photo Van Gogh on Instagram. I uh, The thing I hate uh, most or not hate, but dislike most is, uh, sorry, Eric, scanning. Um, but beyond that, I'd have to just agree with Octavia. The older I get, the heavier my pack seems to be. And uh, carrying, I used to be one of those that carried absolutely everything with me. And uh, as I've gotten uh, back into film and, you know, have three film cameras and my digital camera and, you know, large format, it's just getting to be a little much. So I tend to have to be a little more um, selective in what I take with me. Keep up the great work. Love the show. Talk to you soon. I used yeah. to be that as well, just carrying everything I possibly could. I would go hiking with the Chamonix, a tripod, and the RB67. And that was like two weeks ago. <laughs> but prior to that, I would go hiking with the Chamonix, or even the Intrepid, the RB67, a tripod, the Mamiya 645, and maybe a box camera, probably the Savoy. Oh, and I'd probably have Canonette around my neck. It was a bad decision. And it was such a good decision to, to scale it back to the incredibly light Chamonix and RB67. Yeah, yeah, those are very light cameras, definitely. It's so stupid to go hiking with those. <laughs> Hello, photo friends. This is Nick Toro Jr. 
Uh, what is the least favorite thing about being a film photographer uh, or just a photographer in general? I, I just see the world uh, in a mental viewfinder, like everything I see the world like being framed. And when I have a camera, that's great. But like when I'm just hanging out, like, man, I just, you know, I want to be able to turn that off sometimes. It's like everything becomes photographable. And um, sometimes you just got to chill out and enjoy the moment. Yep. Yeah, it must suck to always see photos everywhere. <laughs> I get what he's saying. You have that urge to bring a camera mm -hmm. wherever you go. And we're, we're told, bring a camera wherever you go. So when I was camping this past weekend, I went for a little walk after I set up my tent and I didn't take a camera. Nice. I was like just having a really wonderful time. Probably nothing to take a picture of. And I'm glad that I didn't see anything. Actually, there was a really nice sunset over the lake that I was camped next to. I didn't have color film loaded. So I was like, I could shoot this, yeah. but it'd be in black Perfect. and white. If you want to enjoy your sunsets, just shoot black and white. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks everybody for calling yeah. in. We really yeah, appreciate it. I think that's it. A, about it for the all, all we got for you today. <laughs> Okay, so I guess we should probably answer this ourselves. So Vanya, what is your least favorite thing about being Ugh, a film okay. photographer? Well, my least favorite thing is saying that everything, things are my favorite because everything is my favorite thing. <laughs> it's awful. You are, yeah, you do, you're very hyperbolic. When yeah, it comes I'm to like, it's like my this. favorite, I love this. So, uh, I don't want to be extremely negative because I know that Eric will scold me, so I'll keep it short and sweet. That's right, I'm super positive. <laughs> <laughs> My least favorite thing would have to be loading film on reels. <laughs> yeah. I you're am bad at so this. bad at this. And and the problem is is it's my hands. I have clammy ass hands. This has been something I've dealt with my entire life. Again, I've said this before, like I was a gymnast and getting on the bars. Like I remember standing by the chalk, just like chalking my hands. I was chalking my hands and then putting on you know, the covers over my hands too. And another thing that was like extremely embarrassing for me was walking across mats that were like kind of like that vinyl because you could see my little yeah. sweaty feet like marks because that's just, I was like, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know, tons of <laughs> moisture like comes out of my hands. It's so, I can't stand it. It's been something I've had to deal with my entire life. I can literally stick my hand out and think about it and it'll just, I'll start to beat up and sweat. Well, you're getting more used to wearing gloves because of mm -hmm. doing wet plate. Do you think you could maybe use gloves and load film at the same That's, time? I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe, maybe. But for the most part, it has to be, I like to load film early in the morning when it's cool outside. Mm -hmm. This is, it's ridiculous. Makes sense. I got to put some sweet, I got to put some soft, sense. soothing music on for myself, light a candle. <laughs> and yeah. I see. I'm not sure where this is going. <laughs> no, I just I have to make sure it's not hot outside. If it's hot, I'm going to yeah. be hot. It's going to be sweaty. My film is going to get super sticky and I'm going to get frustrated. And let me tell you guys, with the 220, <laughs> holy shit, it is like a nightmare <laughs> in there. It is terrifying. So yeah. Well, you did allude to this a little bit before. I get super frustrated with myself and that usually comes 
with memory-based <laughs> things. I have a really horrible memory and my brain often like flips things around mm. on me. It does it all the damn time. It's incredibly frustrating. It's why I sometimes meter a scene to be shot at one eighth of a second, but end up exposing the shot for eight seconds. And for some reason, I always catch it at the exact moment I press the shutter button. So it's longer than one eighth of a second, but I usually won't make it to eight seconds because I'm just, just too busy cursing. And if you're shooting with me and you hear me exclaim, oh fuck, it's more than likely because of this. <laughs> and it was right after I pushed the shutter. I don't really lose my shit. I'm not, I don't have an anger problem. I don't flip no. out or anything. I'm pretty level-headed. I do remain calm. But if I'm having an already bad day and this happens, I can start a bit of a spiral where I get grumpy. I can usually pull out of the grumpiness, but still it is my least favorite thing about me being a film photographer. Yo, what up, my dudes? Tiffin Sinclair dropping in to get a little something off my chest. Like many of you, I'm a camera hoarder, a hoarder of cameras. I also suffer from major gas as well as the occasional gear acquisition syndrome. I'm very well aware that in the film photography world, none of these quirks would be classified as unique to me. But what if I told you that my camera collection isn't a byproduct of my perpetual lust for gear, but rather is the result of me matching cameras to people? Let me explain. Contrary to what my Instagram page might portray, I do take pictures of people. Now, I'm not talking about Bocalicious portraits or Henri Cartier-Bresson-esque street candids. I'm talking about documenting the behind the scenes of all the shenanigans my friends and I get to. Again, I don't share much of this work not because the images are raunchy or whatever, but because these pictures feel extra special to me, and somewhat intimate. It's like, all of my special people trust me enough to be okay with always having a camera on me and taking images of them whenever I please. There's a certain level of vulnerability there, don't you think? Maybe that's a whole topic in and of itself, but not the one I'm going to discuss today. What you want to hear is how I go about matching cameras to people. It should come as no surprise that a cool cat like myself has a somewhat eclectic friend group. All of my buddies are different, which means that the things I do with friend B are not necessarily the same I would do with friend A. I noticed early on in the game that I would pre-select my camera for the day based on the person I would be spending time with. For example, if I'm hanging out with one of my beach bum pals, I'm more inclined to sling the Minolta Hymatic over my neck. It's inexpensive, so I don't have to worry too much about it when I leave it out on the turf when I set for the surf. It's a point and shoot, so I know I won't have to fiddle with the lens as I'm trying to take a picture of them because they just look so happy as we're riding our penny boards down the strand. And it has a flash, so I know I won't miss any special moments after the sun has set on a perfect day of buds being buds. If I'm spending time with my outdoorsy friend, you know I won't be taking the Mamiya RB67, but rather the Canon AE1 because it's somewhat rugged, it's small enough, and the 28mm lens that has basically been soldered onto the body will allow me to do two things. One capture more of our beautiful surroundings, and two, photograph my friend blissing out because they are spending time with mother nature. You should see how tenderly they smile when we hike up to our favorite lookout point. When I look back at the images I've made, I notice that I've never seen them smile so genuinely before. And it's moments like those that confirm that the AE1 is the right camera for documenting our time together. Now, this next camera is my most recent acquisition. I purchased it exclusively for using it with someone that holds a very special place in my heart. I realized all my other cameras were just not cutting it with spending time with this special person. I tried everything in my arsenal. I once used the Hasselblad because I wanted to capture them with the epic 80mm planar, 
<laughs> but no, just because time seems to slow down when I'm with him does not mean it slows down in actuality, so I was missing shots left and right. I tried the X700, but an SLR was just not the play, because it just seemed a bit bulky, and again, it just wasn't fast enough. A point and shoot didn't give me the quality I was after, so that was a fail. I finally decided to take the plunge and invest in a rangefinder. Nothing fancy like a Leica because I did not want my main focus to be whether or not I'll ding the camera. I wanted my main focus to be them, you know, not my gear. And I was looking for something that would provide me with the seamless shooting experience so I wouldn't necessarily be taken out of the moment. So I purchased a Canon P to use with them and only them. It's small, quiet, and unintrusive, and it has enabled me to capture their very hyperactive essence without missing a beat, even though they make my heart skip one. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, at the end of the day, gear is just gear, but the cameras on my shelf have become an extension of my loved ones, and each one has a very special memory attached to it. If these cameras could talk, the stories they would tell. Until then, it's my job to tell a story with them. That's all for now, folks. Handing it back over to Vanya and Eric for some tin type talk. See ya. Vanessa of Armadillo Tintypes isn't just an old-timey portrait photographer. She also produces wonderful landscapes, capturing moments and memories with her unique blend of silver, light, and heavy metal. We're really excited to talk to her, as so let's just shut the fuck up and give her a call. Hello. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. It's so great to see you guys. Yeah. I have a very needy dog today, so you might hear her whining in the background. That's completely okay. Okay, so I guess we can start off by asking you just to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what kind of photography you're into, how you got into this. I am a photography dropout from college years. So um, at the time that I was going to school, it was becoming pretty apparent that digital photography was going to take the stage mm -hmm. and I could not be less interested. So <laughs> I dropped out after one semester <laughs> and um, I continued to shoot film, um, but, you know, just very, very occasionally. And about five years ago, I found a woman named Joni Sternbeck, who is an incredible woman working in this process, what plate collodion. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that people were still practicing this. I had no idea that this was something you could still do. And as a history lover, I was like, I need to learn how to do this. It possessed my whole life. And I took a weekend class in Brooklyn and learned enough on how to mimic the process, but not really how the process worked inherently. So I uh, went to Penumbra Foundation, which is an awesome nonprofit in New York City, and took an eight-week program there with um, an instructor named Sam Dole, and he really taught me how the process worked, and I fell even deeper in love with it. Honestly, I still shoot film, but wet plate is the most exciting thing to me, and it's what I work in the most. <laughs> oh my god, I I would love to go on a eight-week slash retreat workshop. That would, sounds amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And you know, there's so, there's so many nuances with this process. It, it's not something you can just do XYZ and... Mm. 
understand how it works. There's so many different variables. Your chemistry changes daily. The temperature affects it. The age of your collodion, which is essentially a mix of two salts that um, will become sensitive to shadows and highlights, will change as the collodion ages. And it, it, it keeps you on your toes all the time. And there's always going to be this kind of like level of uncertainty, no matter how long I think you've ever been doing this process. I think we're all kind of students forever. I don't know mm. anyone that has everything figured out. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. And so saying all that, our like question that we asked everybody for this episode was like, what is your least favorite thing about photography? I'm not saying that you hate it, but maybe just not like the thing that you enjoy the most. Vanya, <laughs> <laughs> I think you mentioned last week that you were um, doing a shoot and you were both like excited and terrified. Yes. And that's how I feel every single time I take my camera out. Like, I'm so excited to see like what the day is going to bring. Like, I'm so excited that I could get an image that like really moves me. But I'm also terrified that I'm not going to get anything or mm-hmm. my dark room's going to blow off of the table or you know, like my silver is not going to be up to snuff that day or my collodion bottle is going to (laughs) explode, you know, like, and, you know, beyond all of that technical stuff, like sometimes you just don't get anything. And it's a huge time commitment with wet plate and with film, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's such this huge time commitment. You know, you're basically taking a half an hour just to make one image, maybe 15 minutes to a half an hour, or you're hiking like a mile and then... (laughs) You're so excited and you realize you've you realize you've forgotten something or you don't get anything. And it's just it's heartbreaking, just like film, like except it takes a little bit longer to realize that you've incurred the heartbreak, I guess. <laughs> so we're gonna be talking a little bit about storytelling in, via pictures later in the episode. Do you have cool. any thoughts on like a specific way that you tell a story or and does wet plate help with that story? That storytelling? Um, well, I definitely think that wet plate helps with telling someone's story just because you know, with this process, there's no negative. So the images are kind of inherently raw. Um, You can't really fake anything. So it's quintessentially the the person's as they are. Yeah, you can't, we can't make anything up. We can't edit. It just is what it is. But I think, and what I've been kind of exploring more now is when you add the element of a person's relationship to their, to their landscape or to their home, the storytelling element can completely change, right? So, you know, maybe I'm at someone's home and I'm taking their portrait with their dog who they're very close with, or they love to garden. I see a rake, you know, fallen over in the background. Maybe I'll take them to that area to shoot. Like it's, it, it's something that might seem like really inconsequential and mundane, but like a watering can that's kind of like fallen over or like a rake leaning up against the wall. Like these things like inspire me as far as like, telling someone's full story because I mean, those little things are a part of their story, whether they're important or not, you know, it's a watering can, but it's important to their story. Yeah. Right now, I guess my main goal is just to like get a beautiful image of someone in a way that they feel like invokes their own kind of like spirit. And that's good enough. I think for now. Yeah. But I definitely would like to have like a clearer message for like a body of work, which I don't think I have yet. What do you think it'll take to get you there? I think just to continue working and um, getting more comfortable with people. It's strange because I find that I'm like pretty comfortable working with people almost immediately, but I'm like an extremely awkward person in real life if I don't have a job to do. Like mm-hmm. if I don't have a task. Mm. 
I immediately start to panic. Yeah. I have like major word vomit and kind of like black out and talk to people like in circles. Um, But having like a job to do helps. I I really feel like just the more I work, the more clear my mouth. I feel like I'm getting closer to the goal, but I can't really pinpoint what that end point is. Just yet. Uh, I wouldn't be a good film photography podcast host if I didn't ask you a little bit about your camera. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love my cameras so much. <laughs> it is a problem. <laughs> I'm very emotionally attached. <laughs> so my 8x10 camera is a uh, Gunlock Corona camera. It's uh, from 1910-ish. Um, wow. A serial number on it is 165. It is literally <laughs> wow. held together with like duct tape and <laughs> like gum. It's literally like it, it was at one point one piece and it's now three pieces. I've built like a, a stand underneath it. So my lens probably weighs about three pounds. I use the Helier lens that would probably be about a 50 millimeter lens on a um, 35 millimeter camera. Okay. So it's heavy. So uh, I needed a lot of extra strength underneath the camera to accommodate for that and the bellows extension. I love that camera. It's my favorite camera to use. The Helier lens is my absolute favorite. And then I have um, a little workhorse camera, a little um, five by seven with a four by five reducer back Mm -hmm. with a Raptor lens, which is like a very flat lens, but both of my cameras have front and rear movements. So, which I use a lot. So, Mm -hmm. um, and that's like, I think also why I'm less inspired by 120 and 35 millimeter film at the moment because I, I'm really exploring using movements. Yeah, It's such a game changer. I think any for any photographer to look through a lens and realize that they don't have to have this, you know, flat focal field. It's so huge. And yeah. it's like magic. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. It changes. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different hobby, really. It's a, totally. di- a totally different medium. <laughs> well, on that, you shoot portraits, but you also shoot landscapes. Do you approach landscapes differently? And and like, how so? Um, yes, I do. Because I usually, t- I, I, I feel like I take a painful amount of time to shoot an image, mm-hmm. to frame what I want to see. And I can do it on my own time. And, and I can also make it a little bit more of an adventure. If I'm shooting a landscape for myself, I can take a little hike or go up to the beach and really kind of like challenge myself with like what I want to take with the landscape. So I guess in that sense, it's a bit different. I am starting a project right now, which I'm really excited about. I'm working with a sanctuary here in New Jersey called Rancho Relaxo. And Caitlin and myself like many people became friends just through the internet. And um, she invited me down to the sanctuary to shoot some photos of her team working, which Mm -hmm. turned into me shooting photos of the animals, which is like the hardest thing you could ever do with wet plates since you have such a (laughs) small amount of time to actually take the photo. And I'm trying to change my perspective because I feel like I've always looked at wet plate in a way where I felt limited but I'm trying to kind of flip the script on that and work around the limitations. So what I'm actually doing, and this is insane, and but I have gotten a couple great images so far, is I'm setting up my camera and I'm basically just kind of memorizing what's on my ground glass, what's in the frame. And I'm shooting, I'm, I'm sensitizing a plate and bringing it out. So with a wet plate, you have maybe three minutes between uh, taking it out of the sensitizing bath and shooting it. Okay. But instead of having this moment set up, I'm kind of like leaving fate to happen in a way. 
So I'm putting the dark slide holder in the in the back of the camera, and I'm just leaving the lens cap on until I see something that moves me that is in the frame that is in my head. And it's been pretty magical, actually. Mm-hmm. It's been really cool to just kind of like take a breath and shoot a wet plate like I would shoot regular film. And, you know, there's going to be there's always going to be something that's wrong. There's going to be, you know, a horse is going to be moving or, you know, like, but there's these moments that happen, you know, maybe a a cow looks up at me and we make eye contact and I'm able to get that in a second exposure. And it's really, really special. And (laughs) I think that's, I I don't think there's anything cooler than that moment. So if I have to trash a couple plates to get something great, that's really different and that I've never done before and challenges me, then I think it's totally worth it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I probably know this (laughs) answer, but do you like shooting indoors or outdoors more? Oh, definitely outdoors. It's such an adventure. It's just, it's like, you know, it's, I I love the, you know, crispiness of a studio portrait where everything is controlled, but what plate, Clodian, you have no control, (laughs) really. (laughs) So you might as well just embrace it and go for it. I feel like. I love shooting outside. You've traveled with your with all your equipment, right? Before? Yeah, I actually wanted to call in last week when you were asking about the car mods because I have yeah. a little Toyota hatchback, mm. which I put Ruby Lift on the windows and just like a sheet over the back seat. And that became my dark room. I would work out of the little hatch window in the back oh, with wow. Velcro along the top. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you got this new Toyota truck camper. You mentioned it. You're making this into a mobile dark room? Yes, I am. So that actually wasn't the original intention. Um, I travel for my day job uh, pretty regular, rigorously um, from Maryland up to Maine, uh, up the coastal route. And for the last four years, I've been doing that out of a Toyota minivan, which I also camp in. I hate hotels. I will like, I'm just much better in the dirt. Yeah. So I camp out of the out of the minivan and it's not the most comfortable way to travel. So I um, started looking at these little monsters. They're so awesome. Um, my it, It's a 1986 Toyota, I think it's called a Sunland Express, but it's yeah. basically like a very, very small <laughs> camper mm-hmm. um, RV. Like it, it's a drivable little RV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's got this, like, it's got a bathroom, which will become my dark room. Again, like, I'm just going to slap some Rubilith on the vent. So I'll have a light source um, and I'll have, like, it, it will be totally safe for me with the Rubilith over it. And I'll just put a curtain over the door. I've got my running water. That's really all it takes with wet plate. You don't need a ton of space. Mm. So, um, yeah, that'll be easier and I'm going to be much more comfortable. So I'm excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. Thanks. It's been a lot of work. It's like, oh, the roof's leaking here. Now the roof's leaking here. So that's basically <laughs> what I've been working on. But I'm actually taking my first trip to meet up with, um, I think you've had Megan Carson on the podcast yeah. before, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm meeting up with about five other women that are working in, in wet plate. One of the girls' names is Margaret Musa. She's out of Milwaukee and she's hosting us at her family's cabin, which I believe are in the Iron Mountains. So we're going to spend Memorial Day weekend there. And I'm oh super God. excited. Uh, Margaret, I've met already, but I'm super excited to meet Megan and M. White and a couple other girls that are working in this process. Oh my god, I got chills. That sounds like a dream. How exciting. <laughs> so when you look at the, the the ratio of women to men in just photography in general, you have so many more men than women. And when you get in the film, I think those that ratio maybe draws a little closer. We have 
a lot more women than you normally would in, in, in digital. But with tintypes, it seems like it's just women now. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like, you know, women, non-binary has taken over. Like, like the feminine gaze is real. To be totally honest with you, like I find, and this is not, this is with no intention, I, I'm always attracted to women working in this process. I'm always more attracted to their work. Yeah, And even if I don't know they're a woman, I find that I'm always more attracted to their work. I feel like there's, there was definitely probably within the last 20 years or so, a lot of older men working in this process. Mm-hmm. There, Some of them are making really beautiful work, but I don't feel like anyone's really pushed the boundaries to exploring more with yeah. this process until this group of women has kind of just kind of unearthed themselves. And we're all inspiring each other to do better things and take mm-hmm. better pictures and learning from each other. And it's really special. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm kind of part of like a little bit of a renaissance. Yeah, absolutely. For the next episode, we're asking our listeners to call in and answer another answering machine question. And the one for this coming episode is which stories, what kinds of stories are you trying to tell through your photography? I just feel like people's stories, no matter how insignificant they might seem to them, are special to me. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want to tell. I want to tell stories of people that are doing great things, whether they realize it or not. I want to tell Caitlin's story about her doing this amazing work she's doing at the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I want to tell my mom's story, who is just a quilter who you know sits at home 24 hours a day and sews and does art. <laughs> I want to tell her story. Wow. I mean, it's all important. You can find beauty in even the most casual of people if there's something beautiful about them. So, Have you so, photographed your mom? Yes, I have. I photo- My photos of my mom are usually my favorite. Um, I feel like we kind of get a visit from like the wet plate fairy where something always goes wrong, but it winds up being really beautiful, which is my favorite. I actually, um, I have a photo of her that's on my Instagram. I call it my mother, the quilter, I think. She's hanging up laundry, which is like something I saw her do. She was like in her nightgown and I saw her hanging up the laundry and I was like, oh my God, we have to make a picture of this. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. So she brought out a load of laundry and I was using a new formula of collodion I had never used before, which is a lithium base. And it was really funky. I don't know if I mixed it incorrectly or it wasn't ready to be used yet, but I got these weird kind of like portal almost kind of like squiggles through the image. And it also appears like very volatile and windy. And there's a lot of areas in the plate that didn't develop, but it it like, it's like the perfect disaster. It's one of my favorite plates. And that's actually a glass, glass plate. We shared that one last week or a couple weeks ago. Yes, you did. And thank you so much for that. No, thank you. It was, I saw it and I'm like, oh, this is something very special. Yeah, I really appreciate that you guys connected to that image because it's one of my all it's it's probably my favorite image ever. I can see why. Eric, that was yeah, that was Eric that yeah. picked that one out. I was very <laughs> excited about that. Oh my god, do you see this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this was so great. I seriously can't thank you guys enough. So nice talking to you. Have a wonderful day. So much. Mm, Enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, you too. Okay. Bye. All right, bye-bye. <laughs> bye. Storytelling is a universally human thing. It's a trait that spans cultures, continents, and oceans. If there's one thing humans all have in common, it's death and stories, and often stories about death. When we think of stories, we think of the written word. 
but that encompasses only the last 5,000 years of our 300,000 years as humans on Earth. Storytelling, that's an oral tradition most likely dating back to the very origins of language, say 100,000 years ago. But before that, pictures were used to tell stories. So in many ways, pictures, and thus photography, is perhaps a more natural way for us as storytellers. Or at the very least, it's neither a foreign or new concept. What's new is the camera. I mean, relatively new. And that's what we're talking about today, telling stories with our cameras, with photography. But first, let's just get a big definition out of the way. How are we defining a story? Well, let's let's uh, Google that. <laughs> let's let's not Google that. <laughs> okay, fine. A story is a narrative. It's a way to relate an event or experience so that it might be understood by someone who wasn't there. Stories don't necessarily have to be true. These events could be fictional or partly fictional. And so that's our working definition. We didn't go to Merriam-Webster or anything like that for it. I think we can just all kind of figure this is what we're doing. It's not the best, mm -hmm. but here we are. So then, what is a story in relation to photography? Basically, it's the same thing, but just take the words out, I guess. It's a visual representation of an event or experience. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to show the action or thing that happened. It just should be implied. Sure. So there's a lot of gray area here. It could even mm -hmm. be argued that every picture is a story. In fact, that's the old chestnut. A single picture is worth a thousand words. And I guess I could show you a thousand pictures worth hardly a single word at all. But point well taken. And for this specific discussion, we're going to be talking about photos telling stories on their own, not used as illustrations to clarify or decorate one of those newfangled word stories. <laughs> and finally, we're not doing how-to. There are ridiculous amounts of information and YouTube videos that cover that, and you can literally get lost in all those, <laughs> so go for it. So from here, we're not talking to you. I mean, we're talking to you, obviously, but mm -hmm. we're not telling you how to do something. We don't mm -hmm. know. So I guess before we even get into the background of where stories and photography came from, do you have a story about stories? I mean, do you take, do you tell stories with your photography? I do. Okay. Like, like purposely? I do. Sometimes. Okay. But not exactly, because honestly, everybody has a story. So my story is in the water. So if you look at my pictures, you can see, okay, well, she's swimming in the water. Mm -hmm. This is part of my story. This is part of my life and what I do for the love of swimming, yeah. <laughs> surfing, and just enjoying my life in many, many ways. And photography is definitely part of that enjoyment as well. So I do kind of feel like there is a story involved in everybody's work, but I don't necessarily feel like all of my work is telling an important story. Okay. It's just telling my story. Sure. How about you? What do you what do you think about you know, when we first talked, I don't remember who came up with this idea. I think it was me. I think it was. And so, good job. Yeah. Well, my first thought was I don't do this at all. This is mm -hmm. not what I do. I'm not sure how I'm gonna talk about it. I can't I can't research this. You know, I can find some how-tos and all of that, but that's not what we're doing. And so going into this, I was just like, this is dumb. I hate talking about this. I don't really want to talk about it. It's about as, as interesting to me as talking about art. I don't like it, but I think just over the past week or so thinking about this, I think I've come to a lot of conclusions that we'll, we'll get to, but mm -hmm. I, it's been a kind of interesting and cathartic experience for me. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of excited to get into it. So let's get into the background. Photos didn't start out as stories. I mean, not intentionally anyway, it was just science, just trying to figure shit out. 
Mm-hmm. I think the first use of photography to tell a story and is kind of accepted is um, photojournalism. And that seems yeah. to have started, or at least had its seeds started in the Crimean War, which was a war mm-hmm. in Europe that Americans don't know about that happened in 1853. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was kind of the first war that was photographed. And we picked out two pictures from these. And I, I don't, I know nothing about the Crimean War at all. I know that a lot of yeah. people from the Civil War, which I do know a lot about, went over there and took their information back as observers and and used it and applied it to our civil war about 10 years later. Hmm. But other than that, I don't know dick about the Crimean War. We do have two pictures and we'll share them on social media. What are they? Okay, well, the first one is the one I picked. It was, it's three soldiers with their limbs missing or some limbs missing. And it looks like one of them has a new leg that they're going to have to use so they can walk. I don't know. It's, it's a weird, it's a very odd photo, but it stood out to me right away. It's black and white. The guy in the middle is really just like zoned out in a way that I shell shocked or whatever they would have called it then. Yeah. I can like, I feel like I know what he's thinking about right now. <laughs> yeah, he's missing both legs in 1853. Yeah, yeah. like how is he going to work? What is he going to do? He's not going to blog. He can't do that. No, he no. can't be a pro video gamer. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a letter writer, which is a very big thing in Victorian days. Okay. And so it does okay. tell a story. I mean, it, it, it most importantly, it told a story to the people who were looking at it. Mm-hmm. You know, people didn't see the horrors of war. Even then, it was, it was romanticized. And so the picture that I picked is a photo, not surprisingly, without yeah. people in it. <laughs> yeah, it's very Eric photo. It is. It is a very me photo. It's a picture of a road cutting through a barren wasteland that is cluttered and filled with cannonballs, mm-hmm. which tells you that, you know, there was a, a battle here, or at least this was a, a, a probably a fortified position or a position that was shelled by whoever was doing the shelling. And here are all the cannonballs. Uh, looks like they yeah. were solid shot. That's intense. It's not a picture of war. You couldn't, you know, the shutter speeds are really slow. You couldn't photograph war. So you mm. photograph the aftermath, which is what everybody lives with. We live with the aftermath of war. And so that was introduced us to photojournalism. That was the, that was the birth of photojournalism uh, in Europe. Yeah. In America, it came a little later. And that came with, probably with Matthew Brady in 1862. He mm, opened an yeah. exhibit of photos called The Dead of Antietam, which I want to do a whole episode about this because this was like a cultural yeah. shift in America. It it fucked us up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm looking at the photos too and yeah, they are striking. It's, it's, it's different to read a caption of what's happening, but to see it is a whole different thing. Yeah. And like, like in Europe, uh, war was very romanticized, especially early civil war was very romanticized. The mm-hmm. South especially romanticized it, but the North did as well. Most of us have probably seen Ken Burns' Civil War documentary where it's just photos of dead guys and dead guys and dead guys. And that's these, mm-hmm. these are these photos. People didn't see, you didn't take pictures of dead bodies. The Memento Mori thing didn't happen until after the Civil War for the most part. Mm-hmm. So we didn't photograph dead bodies and we and especially didn't photograph dead bodies in situ with their arms tossed about in unnatural ways. You can tell these people aren't sleeping. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one, uh, it's called a contrast, federal buried, Confederate unburied, where they fell on the battlefield of Antietam. The Confederate soldier is, mis- it's unmistakable what he, that he's dead. He's, there's, nobody would sleep like that. Yeah. And the, the other picture of the, um, the bodies next to the caisson in front of the Dunker Church, they're all- Just strewn about. Yeah, they're just littered wherever. And this was a few days after the battle that Brady got there. Mm-hmm. 
So these have been out in the sun for a while. In other yeah. pictures, uh, a lot of, well, this was in Brady who took these, this was Alexander Gardner. Uh, in other pictures of the Civil War, you would have pictures of dead bodies that were half eaten by, by wild hogs. Mm-hmm. And so you were sending that home. And so what he did, what Matthew Brady did, is he opened an exhibit in New York. And the New York Times has that, that famous quote that Mr. Brady has done something to bring home to us the terrible reality and, and earnestness of war. If he has not brought bodies and laid them in our dooryards and along the streets, he has done something very like it. The one thing that it makes me think of is, you know, they would make these tapestries and paintings of wars and all those, depending on who actually asked you to do the painting, you could, you could decorate it and make it look like you are like, this is amazing. And everything was fine, you know, and we're winning and, (laughs) and look at how clean I look and and I'm not injured. And I, I don't know, there's just like so many things that can happen where you can change what actually happened and photographs back then kind of just tell the reality of what was going on. But that's photojournalism. And so we don't, we're not gonna go through the history of photojournalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it evolved over the years. We, we're, you know, we could talk about John Thompson, who did that the, the street life in London that was really groundbreaking, I guess. There's Ouija and mm-hmm. Charles Bronson, I'm pretty sure, was a pretty good, pretty good photojournalist. Storytelling with photos, it's different than photojournalism. And it's, photojournalism is that, but not mm-hmm. all photos are photojournalism. <laughs> So I guess it's a given for that, that photos can tell stories. People just understood that from, I don't know, 1900 on. I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to go from that and smash cut right into telling our own stories. Yeah. And trusting yourself to be an honest storyteller. Yeah. And when we started talking about this, you and I, we decided to kind of just like write just brainstorm, like what yeah. exactly can we do to trust ourselves to be honest storytellers? I think that's a good question. Like what, what is it? Like what does being an honest storyteller even mean? Especially since stories can be fictional. Exactly. So, so honest like, to who? What, <laughs> and, and honestly, everybody works differently too. So it may be different than you and I do things. Yeah. And this would be you because I mean, I don't think this way. So this is all kind of new to me. Yeah. Well, I'm a big time daydreamer. Yeah. So. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah. that's my ADHD, but. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you, we wrote down like visualizing a story in your head, taking notes, maybe some places, emotions and all that. And I think yes. this really sounds like a project, but I don't think we're talking about doing a project. No, but I do think that if you have an idea for a story, I think it's important to write that shit down because honestly, I forget half of the things that I would like to do. Like if I'm trying to tell a story about something, like you obviously want to make sure that someone can see a photo and see what you're saying. If that's what you're going for, certainly. There's always that idea like, well, what if my story is surreal? (laughs) Yeah. You know? So I don't know then. Then good mm-hmm. luck. Then fish. There you go. <laughs> then fish. So uh, there's camera choice could maybe be part of the storytelling I film. Think, yes, it's incredibly important. You're going to tell a different story, uh, context T2, then you're going to have like an eight by 10 camera. So you yeah. got to figure out which camera is the best tool to tell the story, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I guess I can kind of 
talk because I've already talked a little bit about, you know, really trying to get into my portraits project and really start taking pictures of people. And I'm using a camera from 1910 on purpose. Like that is part of it. I don't necessarily think it's just film photographers, but photographers in general like to pick out certain things, whether if you're a digital photographer, a certain lens or whatever, if you're a film photographer, a certain camera or you know, a certain type of film for the grain or no grain. That is definitely like a huge part of our art. Yeah. And I like that. (laughs) That makes me so happy. Stories are very often, and the traditional story is very often linear. You have a beginning, you have a middle and an end. Mm -hmm. That's probably less important with photography, I think, because I think we're getting a lot of ideas, you know, like a a picture is an idea more than anything. Mm -hmm. It can be very direct, it can very be a very specific idea. It can denote mm-hmm. the beginning or the middle or an end of something. I'd be hard pressed to tell you if there's a beginning, middle and end to any of my photos or any of the series of photos. Well, sometimes I'll get an idea and I'll get, there's a little bit of a story behind it, but I'm not thinking like a story. I'm thinking like, well, will this photo look good? Or, or okay. more importantly to me, will I enjoy taking this photo? I disagree. I think you have. I always try to be a little bit encouraging for you to go back to the Nez Pierce project because that is a big story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. I think that would really help with this. That was it is a very it is a I mean, you're following the trail. You're following the road. This is a story of of history that yeah. was very important. You're right. That we should talk about. Yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about you telling that story, though? I mean, that that's always a big problem, isn't it? You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm a white guy who has no connection to, to the Nez Pierce people. And mm-hmm. it's not really my story to tell, but I'm not I'm also not trying to be the definitive source for this story. I'm mm-hmm. photographing their story because in a lot of places, you'll go and you'll see the Nez Pierce have already interpreted these things, but I can photograph it and show it to other people. At least I feel it's important that people visit these places and people go to these places and also to give access to people who can't reach these places because some of these places are, are pretty far out there. Yeah, definitely. I went to a few of the places with you, you did. and just just being somewhere and visualizing what they were going through, trying to go back to their land and, and I mean, it, it is such a touching and sad story. Looking at these places, you know, like crossing the Yellowstone River yeah. into into this canyon with horses and people. Like, I just, I really want you to restart it. <laughs> so. so I have told a story before I laid it out. I mean, this was, <laughs> this was definitely the most organized photography thing I've ever done and probably ever will do. Longtime listeners will understand what happened to that, but I do think I should go back. And try it again. Yeah, Maybe I next think year. so too. I don't know how you guys feel. I'm a 38 year old woman. Went through the public school <laughs> system in the United States, and I feel cheated a little bit with history. I feel like they've whitewashed things, and and I don't feel like they told us the truth. Um, they didn't tell us the whole story. No, and so not. when maybe it's just the details were too much. But I really think it's important to to say like the truth, what what was happening, yeah. what was going on. Yeah, I feel a little bit betrayed. That really sucks. It does, and that's one of the things with photography and these things is I knew that the Nez Pierce War happened. That was mm-hmm. really my knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. So when I was preparing to do this story, I learned so much. I mean, this is a historical story, but any story that you're telling, if it's not 
like fully your own, you're gonna learn so much. You're gonna learn about the place that you are, the thing that you're shooting. You're gonna learn about yourself. You're gonna learn about mm -hmm. your camera. Uh, with mm -hmm. this, when I was actually doing it, I learned my endurance and my car's endurance. <laughs> I learned that a cow will hit your car if you're driving by it. That's a thing that will happen. Yeah. There's lots of things you can learn through photography and through telling stories. Mm -hmm. I like the idea, the romantic idea of not preparing and just going down this road to see what's there. And maybe you can get a good picture. But I mm -hmm. think preparing the story, I think you will maybe get a better feel for what it is to be a storyteller, maybe. I don't want to say that going out there and being, for instance, when we were talking about this, another thing that happened during quarantine, I was like going nuts. So I would put a mask on and I'd go for a walk. And this is when we were like, had to stay home, but I have dogs. So I was like, I'm going to walk my dog around the block just to get out of the house. I'm going crazy. And I'd bring my camera with me. Those pictures are all shit. I mean, they're not great <laughs> pictures. But if I gave a little bit of background to it, it's like, well, yeah, I took these pictures because I was going insane. I was crazy. This is like during the pandemic. Yeah. And this is what I did to keep myself sane. Yeah. So I mean, technically, that's kind of a story too. Well, there's Does a story it there. Absolutely. So that brings up a good point. How do we tell these stories? Now, I do zines. Yes. Well, the Nez Pierce was was meant to be a book. Mm -hmm. We could do shows or something online or not at all. And I think I think that that goes to project then. I'd say so. Yeah. Which project is going to help you tell that story? I think it's just as important as the camera and the film and the idea is how mm -hmm. are you going to tell this story through photography? Yeah. Yes, but what medium? And I, I choose mm -hmm. zines. I, I really like zines. I don't know if it's just I get them out there quickly and or, or what, but I feel very comfortable with zines. I've never done a show. I have, and it's exhausting because yeah. you are like literally standing there telling your story or telling the story yeah. of the photos. But I think in the art world, it's really like important to to make sure that people know that there's some thought behind these and they're not just like snapshots <laughs> because you will not get a show. Yeah. <laughs> So it, there is a little bit of um, maybe some snobbery to that. Oh, definitely slightly. there is. That's one of the reasons I was really hesitant to even talk about this because it just sounds pompous. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it yeah. to sound like that. With stories in photography, just like stories in, in, in the written story, does the viewer matter? Mm -hmm. Like when you're shooting, do you shoot with the viewer in mind? Well, we're all taking photos because we like to take it, but obviously like I'm trying to get a good composition. I sure. I want a good I want it to look pleasant unless I I'm purposely trying to make it unpleasant. I think I do certain things specifically because I I do want it to be pleasant for the viewer to look at. Okay? I'm sure I do. When I take a picture of a train, I know one person who's going to be very happy about that. Uh, Bob. Who's that? That's uh, Bob. I thought it was me. Oh, and Vanya. <laughs> Vanya also. We're very happy about that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Well, how about this? Does the photographer matter? In a way, no. To the viewer, I don't think that a photographer should matter. I kind of feel like it does a little, when we were talking about Nez Pearson, like, is this your story? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I right. kind of do feel like the photographer matters okay. in some instances. Yes. Like, is this appropriate for you to be telling? Fair enough. I absolutely agree with that. Oh God, that's very situational then. Yes, because I think if it's just regular, regular photography, if you're not, if you're not, if you're telling your own story, mm -hmm. I think the viewers are going to end up kind of writing or dreaming up their own stories 
while using your photos as illustrations for them. They'll, they'll read things into your photos that you, that you didn't think of. I think they're mm-hmm. just as valid as whatever the hell you thought of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, it is important that it's on film. I wouldn't say it's necessary, but mm-hmm. it's important if you're going to be shooting on film to consider that when telling a story. You know, when you're digitizing your negatives, like there are some changes, of course, but for the most part, I feel like film to me just seems a little bit more honest than digital. I think it's seen that way by people. I do. I I, I do think that. Yeah. I mean, yes, you can edit your photos, but it just doesn't really make sense to me to do that. I just don't really want to do anything because I want to be as honest as possible sure. with like what I'm doing. And that is obviously a personal thing. I don't really care if anybody manipulates their photos, but when I want to tell my story or tell a story. I don't want there to be manipulation. I, I want it to look like it looked when I took the picture. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. So I feel like that is important to me. Yeah. With digital photography and Instagram, you know, we're telling stories with our own feeds, whether we like it or not. And I think a lot of people know that and will say like, hey, guess what? Just to let you know, I'm pretty fucking depressed and I've been going through some gnarly shit. I post the good stuff, but you know what? I'm going to post some bad stuff too because I need you to know that I'm actually a human being too and everything's not perfect. (laughs) With our photography, we can change our story in a more pleasant way or in a more negative way. So I think the thing that I'm taking away from all of this is that I do need to be a little more introspective in my photography. I need to think about not just the picture, but maybe everything surrounding the picture and the series of pictures and really Mm -hmm. kind of think of the story. Yeah. But also I think all of us can look at photos. We look at photos all the damn time around Instagram or wherever. We're looking at photos. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do that with a story in mind. You know, we look at a photo. What is the story? We don't know the uh, the quote unquote true story or the the photographer's story necessarily we don't know what that is mm-hmm. and maybe there isn't one but we can make one we have an imagination that we don't use anymore because we're adults and we're not supposed to but we have an imagination <laughs> not me <laughs> <laughs> maybe not you so I think it would really help us be more thoughtful photographers. You know, you look at photo books and it really helps you, you know, figure out different techniques and ideas, but also mm-hmm. it could help you figure out stories, I think. It definitely has with me. So saying all this, is there any kind of story that you're working on? Maybe this summer by any chance? No. Okay. <laughs> I know it's a real letdown. And this is where I should say, yes, because of this, I have thought of this amazing story. I can't <laughs> wait to tell. And No. Honestly, I'm not there yet, Yeah. but it has started me thinking that I need to be there. Yeah. I think I'm going to try my hardest to look at a scene mm-hmm. and and see what's, yeah, see what's there. What's the story that I can tell with this picture? And I think that's a good place to start. Instead of just driving off, I think I'm going to sit with it. I need to sit a little longer and just kind of hang out. In our first episode, we talked about a photographer who actually may have even been episode zero. We talked very quickly about a photographer who suggested that you can't take the photo of a place until you've lived there for a year. Yeah. And while that is a ridiculous <laughs> idea, I get what he's saying. And to really know the story of a place, you either have to be a part of that place or just make something up. Either way, you have to figure out the story. It's taken us 43 episodes to 
understand what he was talking about. But yeah, I, I do definitely understand what he's saying a little bit more now that I've been just a little bit more thoughtful with things because it is like we are visitors in landscapes a lot of the times because we don't live there. Yeah. But So I guess all we're really asking of ourselves and you by default, since you're still listening, is that we want to be more thoughtful photographers. And I think telling stories is maybe a way to do that. Now, some photographers out there really love those pricey photo books. We do too. But we love zines maybe just a little bit more. And not because they're cheaper. Well, probably because they're cheaper. But they also, <laughs> they, I think zines tell a more concise story. Zines are like short stories where photo books are like novels. And who can make it through a novel these days? So we've got a couple of zines for you today. What have you got for us, Vanya? I have Surviving Winter. Half size zine. Okay. Surviving Winter is a half size zine. It's made in the deep freeze of winter of 2020, 2021 uh, in Buffalo, New York. He mentions driving five to 10 miles out of Buffalo. I was actually quite surprised how incredibly vast and open the landscape was. I've never experienced this type of landscape, especially in the winter. I've never been to Buffalo, New York. Maybe one day I will. Is there Buffalo there, by the way? There is not Buffalo there. Damn it. Sorry. Okay, there probably was at some point though, right? No, there were never a buffalo in New York. <laughs> then why would they call it that? That doesn't make any sense. That's a very good question. I lived I grew up in a place called the Buffalo Valley. There were never any buffalo there. But there were <laughs> there was there were tall tales about oh, it was it like Luke Sweatland killing the last buffalo? There was no, there was never buffalo there. But go oh my on. Goodness. Uh, another story. Another story. <laughs> that wasn't true. Okay. So this story that he's telling actually in his zine is pretty incredible. It's so beautiful to me. So from a zine standpoint, mm -hmm. it's absolutely gorgeous to me. But I could definitely see myself dreading it because I don't really like being cold. He did something here that was not only super creative, but motivating as well. He made most of his winter and tapped into a really nice creative workflow, shooting Kodak Triax, but also taking images with Potsdam, Ilford, T-Max, to just name a few. The zine is void of people, but it's not of nature. Again, I haven't exactly spent a winter season somewhere with this type of weather. So seeing animals out, the trees leafless in the snow, empty bridges, beautiful patterns from wind in the snow. It's not so much void or emptiness, but a still life that is calm and comforting. He went out on the weekends. He just decided that on the weekends, he was going to go out and, and shoot. I'm so glad that he did this because it is just a lovely zine of black and white images. So check it out. Yeah. We will have the link in the show notes. And thank you so much for sending it to me. Yes. Okay. What do you got for us, Eric? What's the zine? Well, I have Street Stoves by Max Rubarth. And <gasps> I'm Street so jealous of you. Yes, you should be. <laughs> Street Stoves is truth in advertising if there ever was anything like that. It contains pictures of stoves on the street. And that's pretty much it. You'd think that this would be repetitive or boring. Hey, I wonder what's on the next page. I bet it's a stove. Oh my God, it is. But no, it's not, not at all that. First, I really appreciate the cover. Mm -hmm. It's got this assorted images, 1980s 
style cover art, assorted images was a design company run by Malcolm Garrett, who did most of Duran Duran's early covers as well as Simple Minds, <laughs> Thomas Dolby, Level 42. I don't, I don't know, Max, I don't know if you know any of this or if you were just like, this looks sort of cool, but it's very much a Malcolm Garrett looking cover and I, I'm there for it, thank you. Anyway, the zine shares glimpses of the relatively short blip of time that stoves spend between the kitchen and the junkyard. Well, probably not that short because some of these look like they were sitting out there for a while. A good number of these stoves they're really the same stoves that I had in a billion shitty apartments. You know, they're they're white, they're featureless. There's there's nothing all that great about them. They really show that companies like GE and Whirlpool, they just don't give a damn about their customers until they can drop a grand on a stove. <laughs> Something I've never been able to do. I really think this zine is a zine that you should see. I I, I know I say that a lot, but fuck, I just like zines. So anything yeah. we tell you to get, just get. Yeah, street stove. I, I I want. I have to get it because I'm jealous that you have it and I don't. Oh, it's wonderful. I think it's a limited edition, so y'all get to it. Oh, uh, you can get it at doitforthegrain.ca. That is Canada, or contact Max at Ponytail Boy, where boy is spelled B-O-I-I-I, or maybe it's Ponytail Bow Three, or the third. Anyway. Link will be in the show notes. It's mostly color and goes for $10 Canadian. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can help out at patreon.com slash lens. Supporters get our episodes two days early, discounts on early access to our zines, if we ever make any, <laughs> and shout outs on the show. <laughs> well, this episode, we're shouting out two new subscribers. Jesse R., and Dave C. Thank you both so, so much for helping out. At our $5 a month level, you get snapshots, our monthly bonus episodes, where we go into a lot more detail about our own photographic journeys. We'll be doing a kind of a special thing there for the summer, hopefully, hopefully that yes. works out. So $5 a month is a good place to be. And our $10 a month level, you get to hear full-length interviews, like the one we just did with Vanessa, which honestly... It's, it's totally worth God it. God damn, it was such a fun interview. <laughs> she rules. I love her. <laughs> so a huge thank you to all our patrons. Honestly, we could not do this podcast without you. And that's about all the <laughs> podcasts we have for you today. So just a reminder, we'll be taking the month of July off and we'll be back in August with a bunch of new stuff. So you got two more main episodes and we'll probably be sprinkling dev parties throughout the summer, throughout July and We'll just keep doing death parties, I'm pretty sure. Is there anything else you have to say? Mm, yeah, actually I do. Oh my God, what is it? If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail, and we're allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. When speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag all through a lens podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, wherever the hell else you find your podcast. Subscribe to us and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. 
See you in a couple of weeks. Uh, Vanya. Yeah. You want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. You're also a little bit of a drama queen. <laughs>